if they want to get rid of us, let it be as painful as it can be, and revealing the real face of the fake democracy, and we will not volunteer quietly to sit aside. Welcome to the 972 Podcast. I'm Michael Schaefer-Omerman, Editor-in-Chief of 972. And I'm Henriette Shakar, an editor and reporter at the magazine. We started a podcast. We started a podcast. It's election season here, and later in the episode, we're going to talk to 972 co-founder Noam Shezaf about how replacing Netanyahu has become a political ideology in itself. As if we need any more reasons to give Netanyahu attention. But one of the things we've been talking about at 972 is the millions of Palestinians living under Israeli rule who have zero say in these elections, and how that stretches the definition of democracy, to put it lightly. That's something we're going to explore in future episodes as well. This week, I've been talking to Palestinian citizens of Israel who can vote, but who have constantly had to fight for even that basic right. Just a few days ago, the Israeli Elections Committee disqualified an entire Palestinian party from even running in the upcoming elections. You know, some Palestinian citizens feel like this is only one example of how Israel's entire political system is designed to oppress us. And they've decided to boycott the vote altogether. I caught up with member of Knesset Aida Tuma Sliman in Jerusalem last week. We spoke about the boycott and how she thinks Palestinian citizens should be fighting back. Let's get to it. Aida Tuma Sliman, thank you so much for joining us. Israel's Central Elections Committee decided to disqualify Ofer Kasif, a Jewish candidate on your list, Khadash or Jabha in Arabic. It also disqualified Balad, another Arab list, from running entirely. This is not the first time that a candidate or list has been disqualified. Is this all political theater or is it different this time? Um, when it is in the Central Committee, Election Committee, it is a political theater, in my opinion, because, as you know, this committee is composed of representatives of political parties. And especially this time, it escalated because of the interrogation they made to the uh, uh, candidates for offer and for the ballot people. Uh, it was more like Macartism, you could see that they are trying to check how he think and what kind of ideas he have on a political level. And this is not what disqualification is about. Disqualification is if he did anything that is breaking the uh, basic law of the Knesset and not how he thinks politically. So, uh, yes, this time they are. Uh, you could see that there is an escalation of the uh, Zionist consensus to reject anything or anybody who think differently, who stands up against occupation, stands up against racism for equality, etc. What sort of impact does this have on the Palestinian citizens of Israel? And do you think it will affect voting turnout? It's uh, kind of uh, two different ways that it affects the voters. On one hand, some of them will be challenged and will be irritated and they will think uh, the good answer will be 
to go out and to vote and to support those who stand up for our values. On the other hand, there will be some people who will be uh, affected negatively, and we already saw some of those responses uh, that says, okay, they don't want us in the uh, Knesset, we don't need to be there, which means helplessness or hopelessness feeling that we are not going to change the situation. I think we don't have that luxurious approach of saying, okay, they don't want us, then we will not be part of it. Uh, We are an oppressed and persecuted minority, and we need to fight back. The minute they get more oppressive, exclusive, we need to fight back even more strongly. You know, you're talking about Palestinians who are calling to boycott the elections. They're saying, why support the appearance of democracy? Why lend credibility to a system that inherently discriminates against Palestinians? Uh, Well, first of all, uh, I don't think that my participation and my colleagues' participation in the Knesset helped to show Israel as more democratic. We are there to represent our own people. Every time that we stand up and reveal the hypocrisy and the racist approaches, we are helping the uh, general public to understand that this is not democracy. If we were not there, what kind of a scene will be in the Knesset? Will that paralyze the Knesset? Or... The Knesset will continue to work and they will say, well, we were democratic enough and gave them the possibility to be in the game. And they choose not to. Second, they will find always someone who will as if represent the Palestinian minority, good Arabs that will agree to be part of the Zionist parties. And we can see they have them now also. And Israel will, toward outside, will mark those who are not participating in the elections as uh, those who voluntarily excluded themselves and don't want to be part of this state. I think we don't go to the Knesset in order to have privileges. We go there to fight for what we stand for and for the rights of our people. When it gets bad, you are supposed to fight harder and not to run away. But Palestinian citizens have also organized outside the system. There are ways to represent Palestinian rights and the desires and the needs of Palestinians inside Israel by establishing alternative institutions and civil society groups. I came from the civil society. NGOs do not represent politically people. NGOs can speak terminology of rights. They are not elected. These groups, and I've been running such a group for many years, Women Against Violence, the oldest and the biggest feminist group inside the Palestinian society in Israel. The civil society, because it is not elected, it is more able to be as radical as they want. 
or to put an agenda that might be a minority agenda inside the minority. And we know how complicated the situation between funders and NGOs. So there is no other minority in the world that managed to fight their struggle without political entities. And political entities are mainly parties. Of course, there are popular groups that can be alternatives. Those who are leading the popular struggle are mainly parties who are represented in the parliament. So it's not either this or that. Those who are trying to reflect boycott and come and join the popular struggle, sorry, we are the ones who are leading the popular struggle, the parties who are represented, not those who are boycotting as much as I respect their ideological approach, and they are a minority among those who are not voting. I saw the difference, how the world deal with us when we are representing our party, because we were dealt as representatives of the whole minority, and not only representative of an NGO. You need better representation in order to be heard even in the world and to be able to bring the world to solidarate with us. What reveals better the undemocratic approach of Israel when we boycott and don't run to the election or when we challenge and run and they try to disqualify us? What reveals really the real face of this kind of fake democracy when we just sit aside and don't challenge or when we challenge and they have to explain to the whole world why they are disqualifying us. With the passage of the Jewish nation-state law and the possible entry of the fascist Kahanist party in the Knesset, do you see a situation in which the Arab parties decide to boycott the elections themselves? What would it take for the Arab parties to say, we're not playing this political game anymore? I think I already answered that question. Parties are not created to boycott. Parties are created to fight and to influence. Now, the decision to boycott, why we are talking about boycotting only the elections to the Knesset? What about the uh, local authority elections? This is a political discussion, a political agenda. Is our political agenda to be equal citizens or to create a total different political entity? We have chosen. Our fight is to be equal citizens and to help to promote the Palestinian national project that was adopted by the Palestinian people to create a Palestinian state in the borders of 1967. We will continue to be citizens of this state that is created here. And we want to influence what kind of a state it is and what kind of citizenship we have. I haven't heard in Britain, for example, if there is or now the Americans, because they have this racist president. Nobody's asking the Democrats why they are not boycotting the elections. 
I want to push against that a little bit because our position as Palestinian citizens of this country is not the same as being a Democrat in the U.S. We are already marginalized, and since the establishment of this country, we have been discriminated against. Do you against. think that there are voters among the Democrats that are marginalized in the United States of America and disqualified and delegitimized? Of course they are. I know that we are indigenous people and we are the people of this homeland. And I know that we became a minority after Nakba. But again, we are now citizens of this state. This is my political agenda. I think that we need to fight for equal citizenship and for a Palestinian state. This is my political agenda. As long as I'm able to do it, I will continue to do it. Even if Ofer gets disqualified and uh, Balad gets disqualified, do you think you will still run? As much as I don't trust many times the Supreme Court, I hope that the Supreme Court will bring him back. About Balad being uh, disqualified, every time that the election committee disqualified Balad, the Supreme Court brought them back. I hope that this time it's going to be the same. But anyway, this is a decision that should be made in the party, and we didn't do it till now. We still believe that if they want to get rid of us, let it be as painful as it can be, and revealing the real face of the fake democracy, and we will not volunteer quietly to sit aside. Member of Parliament Aida Tumasliman, thank you so much for answering our questions. Thank you. Next up, we have 972 Magazine co-founder and former editor Noam Shazad. Noam and I sat down last week to discuss the latest Israeli political developments but also to try and make some sense of the most shocking thing Benjamin Netanyahu has done of late. Help into the Knesset a group of Kahanists, which is followers of militant Jewish supremacist Mayor Kahane, whose political party is a designated terrorist organization today. One note before we get started, a little bit of street sounds made it into this interview, so we apologize if you hear any background noise. Welcome, Noam. Hi, Mike. My first question to you is, what are these elections about? And perhaps more interestingly, what are they not about? These elections are about a single issue, maybe a single man, and the man is Benjamin Netanyahu. The drama surrounding Netanyahu and his attempts to remain in power and the attempt to make him resign has overshadowed any other issue in these elections, meaning any attempt to raise the conflict, the Palestinian issue, the occupation, democracy, not to mention social justice issues, any attempt to make these the central case of the elections have failed and now we're talking more than anything else about Netanyahu. Speaking of people who are not lefty liberals, uh, the main challenger to Netanyahu right now is a party that is a combination of Yair Lapid, the former television host turned politician, and three former IDF chiefs of general staff led by Benny Gantz. The latest polls since the attorney general announced his decision to indict Netanyahu have them ahead of Likud, Netanyahu's party, by anywhere between 6 and 12 Knesset seats. We don't know a whole lot about them. What we do know is that their primary campaign is anybody but Netanyahu. What does a victory look like in that sense? Well, first of all, 
we should speak about how the system works in order to understand what a victory looks like. So Israel is a parliamentary democracy, meaning that you need to form a majority in parliament. Out of the uh, 120 seats, you need to form a coalition of 61 at least members of Knesset who would support the government. And this government uh, uh, can rule as long as it has this majority. If the, if the government's coalition drops below 61, new elections will probably be called. Netanyahu is trying to get a political bloc that consists of the ultra-Orthodox parties, the national religious parties, the smaller right-wing parties, and his dominant Likud party to reach 61 and to form a government. In order to prevent him from doing that, and that's the first threshold that the new parties will have to reach, they need to reach at least 60 seats in a bloc that combines the centrist parties, the left party, and the Arab or Palestinian parties. If all these parties, Labour, Merits, the Arab parties, and the new centrist parties get to 60 votes, Netanyahu cannot form a government. Then we reach a second threshold, and this threshold is whether the generals, the white and blue party, as they call themselves, can form their own party and whether Benny Gantz can become a prime minister. And where is their support coming from? Who, who are they? And do they stand for anything other than not being Netanyahu? In the context of these elections, I think Benny Gantz's party, the, this uh, blue and white party, is not a lot more than an ad hoc coalition for the replacement of Netanyahu. And, and their first challenge will be to hold this camp together after the elections. But as long as the story is about Netanyahu, I think they have a, a common denominator. The, the Gantz party does represent the rise of the generals, which has always been this trope about Israeli politics that hasn't always held water as much as many people believe or want to believe, that you have to come from the security establishment in order to make it in Israeli politics. Netanyahu is, is the, the best example of why it's not true. The right has traditionally been has drawn in power less from the army and the security establishment. The right has produced, you know, some of the most well-known defense ministers who were civilians, like Moshe Arens. The two longest-serving prime ministers from the right, Tzhak Shamir and uh, Netanyahu, were not generals. Um, the exception, Sharon, who came from the Likud, is almost a Mapainik figure, person of the left, and he left the Likud and formed Kadima. And I, and I think that when you look at the Israeli army, it's not that the army controls the, the, the political system, but the army is a dominant institution in Israeli civil life. And it is interesting to see how various generals overcome their own personal animosity and their differences in opinions, because Defense Minister Yalon and the former chief of staff Gantz and former chief of staff Ashkenazi who are all parts of this uh, party, do not hold the same uh, positions, but they were able to unite because they want to push back against Netanyahu, and I would argue maybe a little bit against the settlers, maybe a little bit against the new right. It's interesting to see military figures move out of the shadows and engage directly with the public in order to assess some sort of the army's position. Israelis have been more willing to entertain the idea of compromise on the Palestinian issue following periods of violence. Right now, the biggest chance of political change, of a political uprising, is actually coming from people with a military background. And yet we're not in a, in a time following a period of violence, at least as far as the Israeli public is concerned. 
Is it, is it the institutional background that makes them attractive? You know, it's, it's almost ironic that military men are the greatest chance of, of political change. I think we need to think about what is political change in this context. I think you should understand and read these elections in terms of the, the Israeli horse race, A, but also the Israeli internal institutional battles within the Israeli society and even more so within the Jewish society. The Jewish society is experiencing several conflicts between uh, ethnic groups within it, institutional conflicts. We talked about the, the, the role of the army, the role of the courts, and all these play in, in this specific election. So we can expect, we can, we can see some changes after the election, but I'm not sure that in terms of a resolution of the conflict, like an end of claims, end of conflict moment, I don't think that if Gantz is going to win the election, that the day after we'll be expecting this around the corner. I think that we'll see the new party kind of testing the water, seeing where the public stands after 10 years of Netanyahu, seeing the changes in the international system. The Israeli consensus has moved. So we'll just have to see what emerges after the elections before we can speak about the implications to the Palestinian issue. And what about a victory if Netanyahu pulls it off? Basically every every party in the right as we know it today in the current Knesset, with the exception of Lieberman, who doesn't look like he's going to make into the next Knesset, and Kahlon, who doesn't really have a position here or there, is an active supporter of annexation. What can we expect if he, if he does make it back? If Netanyahu wins the election, I think still for him the main challenge will involve his legal position. Israel will head into a constitutional crisis where the um, person who's been almost indicted will serve as prime minister with all the implications that might occur, prolonged hearing in the Supreme Court. Netanyahu will have to choose between using his base on the right or trying actually to reach some sort of alignment with the centrist party. Which he did in 2009. Yeah, in order in order to shield himself a little bit, to get a little bit of uh, recognition from most centrist voices as well. So I don't think that there'll be immediate changes on the Palestinian issue. And also, on a broader sense, I think that Netanyahu and even many of the settlers understand that complete annexation is is not in Israel's favor. I think the status quo represents a better system and the sort of creeping annexation that we've seen in the past is a better uh, roadmap for the Israeli right than trying to reach a climatic moment in which Israel declares that it is now full sovereign between the sea and the river because this will... A, cause international reactions, there will be internal reactions for that. It might spark violence, which Israel does not want, violence against Jewish citizens, I mean. And it can also cause all sorts of legal problems. You know, the fact that the West Bank and Gaza are under military law, Gaza is a separate story, but the West Bank is under military law, gives the military commander many tools he can use in settling the land, in confiscating lands, in determining what is security pretext, what is civilian pretext. It's actually more difficult to maintain this 
complex structure of citizens of non and non-citizens within the West Bank under civilian law than under military law. So by annexing the land, completely annexing the entire land, Israel would be handing the Palestinians all sorts of legal options and maybe even parliamentary options to challenge the occupation. What I think we'll see is more of the creeping method, meaning if we didn't build new settlements and call them as new settlements since the Oslo Accord, we'll maybe do that. If we hesitated before evacuating Khan al-Ahma, maybe we'll do that. And uh, maybe we'll convince more embassies to uh, move to Jerusalem. Maybe we'll push the separation barrier. Maybe we'll push the boundaries of some settlements that they can incorporate. And, and maybe and one of the most important things is legalizing all the outposts in, in the West Bank that will create a, a very different image uh, in the territorial sense. Let's talk about the Kahanists. It feels like there's, a, there's an entire cottage industry these days, uh, in the United States particularly, predicting and warning about a coming schism or an existing schism between American Jews and Israel, and nowadays also between the Democratic Party and Israel. And one of the things that's been driving that conversation, especially in the past few weeks, is Netanyahu's courtship of the Kahanists and encouraging them to, to merge into a party which would guarantee their inclusion in the next Knesset and possibly even the next government. Do we need to stop talking about this? Is it an issue that, that it's dramatic as the, the people who are talking about it want us to, to believe it is? Or is it even a positive development? As an Israeli, as an Israeli Jew, I can't see any advancement or increased visibility of Kahanist group as a positive development, even if it creates some sort of backlash of sort of exposing some, some elements which have always existed. In, in the Israeli system, the, the Kahanist party present, you know, the worst racist ideas. And, and we should remember that when Kahana was banned from the Knesset in 84, uh, in, in his appeal to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court Justice Shamgal held the decision of banning and, and confirmed it because Kahana's proposed legislation, for example, banning Jews from marrying Arabs, reminded him of the Nuremberg Laws. And he said it, the court. Now, the Supreme Court compared explicitly in Jewish party to a Nazi party in Israel in the 80s. So this was this bad. So I think that they do represent a dangerous element. Though... Uh, on the other hand, there have always been parts of the system which were Kahanist, and Kahana himself was a Knesset member, and Michael Benari, who's the senior Kahanist member now, has been a Knesset member. So there will not be a novelty in them entering the Knesset. I think the novelty will be in the way that Netanyahu supported this act and campaigned for it it's it's another proof it's another proof of what we've seen in the last 10 or 15 years that for all sorts of reasons israel has been gradually moving to the right what was considered left in the past is now radical left and what was considered right is now maybe centrist and the right their ideas become more mainstream it may not be a watershed moment as far as Israeli politics is concerned, Israeli society, or, or, or the shift of, of internal dynamics. And yet, people are looking at it as something that's either a pivotal moment, or perhaps it's just opening their eyes to something that, as you said, has been, has been gradually happening for a long time. And, and the question is, 
Is that meaningful? Could that have consequences? We've been uh, in 972 talking about American Jewish response, for example, for developments in Israel and institutional response for developments in Israel and the right-wing trends in Israel for, I think, a decade now, almost. And I think that by now everybody concludes that the Israeli public and the majority of the American Jewish community are moving in separate directions, if not opposite directions. What remains to be seen is the willingness of the American Jewish community to do anything about it. Moving in separate directions could mean many things. It could mean that the American Jewish community is alienated from Israel, but does not do a lot about it. It means that um, uh, they're indifferent to Israel and each community sort of focuses internally on their own issues and problems. And it could also mean that um, American Jews, at least some of the American Jews, will feel a sort of desire to change the course Israel is taking. And I think that for the large part, the American Jewish community has chosen indifference. And where it voiced its opinion was more about issues of uh, state and religions, like the, like the issue of the wall. And... I'm not sure that the entry of Tzmayudi into the Knesset will will change this trend. And there's also a flip side, which I think that if Gantz does win the, the election, there'll be a tendency to say, all right, everything is fine now. We don't have to really look at what's going on in Israel. doesn't matter if Kahana is in the Knesset or not, but the time of Netanyahu is past, now we're back to normal. This is a question for American Jews to figure out for themselves. What is their relations to Israel? What is their commitment to Israel? What is the commitment to Jewish values means in the context of uh, Israel? The trends so far don't lead me to conclude that this will be a substantial issue. Thank you, Noah. Thanks, and thanks for having me. I'm Michael Schaefer-Omerman. This episode was produced by myself, Ido Conrad, and Henriette Shekhar. Thanks to Adala, the Legal Center for Arab Minority Rights in Israel, for helping facilitate the interview with member of Knesset, Tuma Suleiman.